I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with a very happy Steve. Good <laughs> guys. Um, we've got with us today Dr. Gavin Bedford, ecologist specialising in reptiles. Welcome, Gavin. Yeah, good day, guys. Um, Steve, why are you so happy, mate? Um, uh, no reason. <laughs> I've just, uh, Gavin Bedford um, has brought along some Owen Pelly pythons for me to see and hold, and it's the first time for me to hold an Owen Pelly python. Um, and for me, who, who is a python guy, it's, it's a massive moment. And I am a little bit speechless and I was shaking and everything. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, that, that was one of the best moments of my life. You look like you're on your first date. It was, yeah, yeah. What, from Shake, down below? or shaking like a leaf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going there. Yeah. Yeah, I did. No. Yeah. Which is I, why I we was, do a podcast and not I video. was quite literally shaking. Yeah. Um, it meant... That, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I'm going to own these, you know, soon, is uh, that, which is just a dream. I don't need to. Only, now I've held them. The only python you've never, <laughs> never owned? Is that, am I right? That's, the, that's my first ever python. <laughs> so that, no, no, that's the only python that's, you've never owned. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, so Owen Pelly pythons, I mean, there's not many in captivity at all in Australia. No. Not that I know of. Not Probably I've, I've got more than the average. Yeah. And uh, and hopefully one day they will be. You know, you know that's that's why this project started. The idea was to bring an animal that we know very little about. Uh, it's only been categorised since uh, 1977, and uh, and and very few people have had the opportunity to have it. Year of my birth. I didn't know that. I didn't realise it was that special. That's how special. One it of the, is. one of the other. I was yeah. born. The same time, yeah, yeah, nice. So they were discovered. <laughs> yeah. they, they, no, described. Described. Yeah, you know, Aboriginal people have known about them for thousands of years, and and it is one of the the rainbow serpent. They they call it Naran, and the rainbow serpent is the the the, the mother of the earth, and uh, and so uh, people have seen it as a special animal. I guess because it's really hard to find, and I know that because I spent six years looking for it, and I've only seen three. So. Um, Unless you happen to be from Sydney and you jump on a plane and go straight to Kakadu and walk into the car park at Norlangi Rock and go, oh, look, there's one, um, which I'm not, he, uh, there's, there's very few people that actually see it. So f- from that point of view, we didn't really know whether it was doing well. We've had cane toads go through the top end of Australia heading west and, uh, and there's a good chance that a lot of animals were in decline because of cane toads and there's no reason to suspect either directly or, or indirectly that Owen Pellys weren't doing the same thing. I say directly, maybe the young eat, eat toads or even adults eat toads, uh, or indirectly, if you've got the prey species going because they eat toads, then there's a good chance that the predator, the Owen Pelly, is in decline as well. So we really don't know. Um, but I thought, uh, unlike the Christmas Island pipistrel, which went extinct after researchers had watched over 40 years where it went from hundreds of thousands down to zero. Let's put some in captivity so that we've actually got something in captivity that, uh, that, that, that is a known quantity. Um, we're not that good at putting things back on country, but if we ever get the chance to put it back because it did go extinct and we can get rid of the, 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 the vectors that were eliminating it, then we can say, okay, let's put it back and we can monitor it. And that's essentially uh, why I did that project. Uh, the couple, a couple of other things were 
Um, I've worked with Aboriginal people for 30 years and um, where Owen Pellies are found is a very resource poor type of country. You know, they can't grow crops, they can't run cattle on it because it's high escarpment country uh, and so they have very few resources so uh, I've seen many white people come along or westerners come along and tell Aboriginal people that they've got this really great project that they really want to do uh, they do the project and the Aboriginal people don't benefit from it so I wanted to change that paradigm so that Aboriginal people benefited from this project so essentially they're my partners and anything this project makes, uh, they make money from this as well because Owen Pellies are found on their country and their country only and uh, and um, it's hopefully everybody wants an Owen Pelly python, including Steve, one day. Um, and and uh, from that, uh, the Aboriginal people will benefit over time. And, and the second part of that is if we can get Owen Pellies bred as rough scales are and distributed right across the world, then there's no reason for anybody to come and poach them. So people don't need to go onto Aboriginal land and, and try and steal um, pythons that are very special to Aboriginal people. You know, um, they're, they're seen in some areas as a totem, as something revered and sacred. So let's, let's leave them where they are. And I think um, once I've, uh, I've bred them to the point where there's enough going uh, right around Australia uh, and hopefully from zoo to zoo around the world uh, then my job will be done yeah that's great yeah. and and from from my point of view like I've, I've always been pie for mad it was my my big thing that I've always followed in the hobby um, it's one python that we always said we we can't own we're not allowed to own and never will own that was literally how we thought yep. um, unless Illegally, which obviously none of us wanted to do. Um, so it was something that we never thought. So you went through all of that and, and got us to this point. Was there loads of ho uh, loops and that that you had to jump through? We haven't got enough time, Steve. Really? Honestly, we, we could talk for three days and I still wouldn't have enough time to tell you about the, the loop, the, the, the hoops I had to jump through. Um, I am not in the parks and wildlife system. I'm not with the government. Therefore, no matter what, and you're, you, every, every one of your um, listeners will know that if you ask a government a question, the answer is no. It's, yeah. it's their standard go-to answer. The answer is no, until you can wear them down and convince them, because there's no bureaucrat on the planet that wants to say yes and put their bum in a sling uh, because they made the wrong decision. Mm. So no is always the right decision, and then you've got to work from there forward. So I didn't take no for an answer, and I've got to say that there's, there's one person that pushed me a little bit uh, more than I probably would have myself, and that's Greg Miles. Uh, Greg happened to be a ranger in Kakadu, senior head ranger in Kakadu for 35 years and on Christmas Island. So he knew how the bureaucratic system worked. He knew how Aboriginal people worked. And he knew that this animal was really important to, to be in captivity uh, for, for all the reasons I mentioned before. So uh, without Greg, it just would not have happened. He, he knew the Aboriginal people to talk to. Um, just a, a really simple case. If you go to Parks Australia and say, I want to collect something out of a national park, and it's an Aboriginal-owned national park, or joint-managed, um, they'll say, uh, uh, OK, um, you've, got to put it, you've got to put that proposal to the board. 
So you go, okay, I'll put the proposal to the board. So you put the proposal to the board. I want to collect a known Pelly Python. And the board go, uh, and the, before it even gets to the board, the park manager looks at it and goes, oh, no, can't have it. No, the answer is no. When you go back to them and say, oh, why was it no? They go, oh, because you didn't consult with Aboriginal people. And you go, but your instructions say, do not consult with Aboriginal people until you've gone to the board. So I learnt the lesson there, don't go to the board, go to the Aboriginal people. So the second time I went to the Aboriginal people and I got their blessing. They thought it was a really good idea. They knew that there were, there, there were benefits all around for reasons mentioned before. And they'd given me the blessing. So then I go back to the board and all of a sudden, why did you go to the Aboriginal people? <laughs> so, so you're caught in this, in this endless loop that you can't get out of. And, and ultimately, uh, ultimately, the Aboriginal people from Kakadu have the final say. So if the, board, if the Aboriginal people on the board like the pro- proposal and are prepared to back you, then it will happen. And, and that's pretty much what happened. Um, but if you followed their in, the, the Parks Australia instructions or, or NT government instructions, it would never have happened because it's just an endless loop, a big catch-22. Yeah, just playing it safe. Pretty much. If it yeah, goes wrong, they don't yeah. want to be responsible. Pretty much, yeah, 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 absolutely. They're beautiful pythons. You've, you've brought a few in as we said. Yeah, um, your viewers can see them now. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this. We, mate, we may share a photo. We'll explain them. <laughs> they are long and legless. Long and legless. Thanks, Steve. Edit that. No. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> Years ago, John Weigel and I started a, a business called Snake Ranch in New South Wales. We bred pretty much every uh, python species, and you know, I'm a, I'm a python guy too. My PhD was on pythons, and and uh, you know, sort of have kept a couple. And uh, John and I started Snake Ranch, which was dedicated to breeding pythons for the pet trade. Uh, this is back in the early 2000s, 2004, I think. And uh, the only one that we could never get was Owen Pellings. We, we couldn't get the, the Western olive python either, but yeah. that's just an olive python. Who cares? Yeah, it's still olivaceous. So yeah, that's yeah. just a stir I've kept them. Not Baranoi, but I've kept olives, so I'm not yeah, too yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah, I've even kept a couple of white ones even. But Yeah, you have. Yeah. We're, We're going to get onto that. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, um, would, just because you're on your PhD side, what was your PhD on? Uh, it's called ecophysiology of five species of Northern Territory python. So I looked at the uh, ecology or ecophysiology of um, water python, top end carpet python, children's python, and then down in the desert we had uh, bread you know, uh, central carpet python, and Stimson's python. And uh, the, the carpet pythons and Stimson's pythons, or children's are fairly similar mm. you know the Stimson and the children are very similar animal and, and uh, top end carpet and bread are very similar animals um, to look at and they're all pythons obviously uh, but when you look at their ecology and, and look at their um, their physiology you know the way their body works it's it's very different uh, they're, they're, they're chalk and cheese really so yeah, very interesting. Um, most pythons are really low energy specialists and uh, probably the only python that I haven't looked at the, the energy use of is Owen Pelly's because when I was working at the uni we didn't have access to them. Would have been nice. But uh, because it's such a long skinny snake, I mean it's the longest, um, it's the longest snake 
for its body size. You know, it's a very long, skinny snake. Mm. It should really be a tree, you know, tree dweller. Uh, but it seems to be found in, in rocky areas. I didn't ever find one in a tree. They climb like you couldn't believe. They're very uh, sticky as well. They're one of those animals that can hang on to almost anything. If you try and get one out of a cage that's got a, got a few little uh, bits that stick out, these things can hang on to it like you wouldn't believe. So you, you know when they're sitting on a rock ledge waiting for a bird to go past or a bat or a mammal, uh, another form of mammal, they are just anchored in there and able to, to stretch out and their strike range seems to be longer than anything else I've dealt with too you know scrub pythons have got a fairly good mm. strike range uh, olive pythons when they they're, they're really out to get you've got a pretty good strike range as well uh, these things leave oh and pellies leave them for dead so a one and a one and a half meter uh, on Pelly in full strike mode will strike probably 75 to 80 centimetres so it's over half its body it's, it's quite impressive and they move a lot when you're handling them that's the first time I've handled an Owen Pelly and it, it was always on the move and they never stop. Yeah, they never stop yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're a very different python to anything else I've ever kept um, and Part of that is they never settle down. You know, even the five metre one, uh, the, the five metre girl that's the mum to most of the animals that I've got. got. Uh, I've had her six years now and I pull her out of the cage just to clean her cage, which is a big aviary, and she will never settle. So, and that's probably the calmest animal I've got. All these captive bred ones as well. You know, you pull them out to clean a cage, they just never stop. If you're touching them, they're just on the go. Whereas most pythons, as people know, you wrap them around your neck and they just sit there doing whatever pythons do. But uh, these things are very different, very different. And the colour change in them, you know, uh, where everybody's on to morph saying, well, you know, I've got uh, a, a black and pink uh, python or a blue and green python. Um, if there, are, I think there are still purists out there that, that like the idea of an animal that isn't a morph. Um, Owen Pelly's give you the best of both worlds. They go this drab, brown, boring children's python colour during the day. Can you take those snakes out of the room so they're not listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at night, they go like a, like a sheet of paper, you know, bright white. It's just amazing. Uh, years ago, when we were looking for them, we used to call them the ghost. And, and in reality, that's what they are. Because at night, when you're shining a torch on them and they're in their nighttime colours, there's almost a halo over them when you actually hit the, hit the, 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 the white of the... Of the animal at night. It's just really impressive stuff. Really impressive. Why do they do that? Is that camouflage? Well, it didn't look cam camouflage. No. I've got no idea. Mm. Um, where they're found in the sandstone escarpment, they really stick out a lot. You'd have thought they'd stay that drab brown. Um, I, I've got no idea. Got no idea. Uh, unless the prey that they're hunting doesn't see that as a as a um, a threat. Um, years ago I was working in Central Australia this is before I started on pythons I, I saw Latoria gillinii the little gillens tree frog and they're all green that's fantastic green, green frogs, Central Australia yeah well green frogs are everywhere who cares but then I saw them during a rainstorm and the males turn brown when they're calling 
So they are really rich brown. No green at all. So they've gone from green to brown. Why do they do that? Well, if you're sitting there going, Oi, look at me. Oi, look at me. Um, there's a good chance that something will knock you off. Mm. Especially if you're the colour that they expect, green. So if you've changed to brown and all of a sudden you're going, Oi, look at me. And they're going, hang on, there's no green frogs here. Um, you've, you've actually camouflaged yourself to being knocked off. Attracting the ladies but not the predators. Correct. Yeah, the sound's attracting the ladies. The predators can't see the colour that you normally have. That's very interesting. Only once, I've kept green tree frogs uh, for many years, but I actually had one turn like a mud brown. Like, I know they can go dark and olive and bright green, but one went brown. I was super surprised. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it's something like that, you know, just they're they're changing colour at night because the stuff that they're preying on doesn't see the colour that they turn as a threat. I've got no idea. And you said they can get over five metres long? The one that I've got is probably the largest ever in, in, uh, in our recollection, and it's just over five metres, yeah. And they've, they've got a, a, a small distribution, would you say? Very small, yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Pretty much confined to the West Arnhem Escarpment. They go as far... Uh, so from Javaroo going east they get to about Manangrita just before Manangrita and they're probably on the the three river systems there so you've got the East Alligator uh, the Man and the Liverpool rivers and if you go uh, up through them you've got that very very broken uh, sandstone escarpment country that is tough to walk through. So have you collected from all three of those areas or did you only have one area you could I only had one area, you know, the Aboriginal people that I was working with at the top of the East Alligator, uh, the Hunter Clan, they, uh, they, well, we, we got helicopters into to there because there's no roads. There's, uh, you know, 80 kilometres to go with no roads. It's a beautiful country. Once you get in there, um, there's no rubbish, there's no footprints, there's no sign of humans other than jets going over every now and again. Cane toads. And cane toads now. But, um, yeah, just a a really magic place. Um, And I can see why, you know, people have an affinity for the land because it's just a place you just can't get out of your head. Uh, Have the same problem with the the ranges in central Australia too, you know, having walked over them for a long time. I just, that that brick red just gets into your your psyche and you just can't get rid of it. So we've got an amazing country. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is my first time in Northern Territory as well, and wow, it's just absolutely amazing. We went out herping last night, yeah, um, and we saw is it seven species of snake, seven species of snake, and a turtle, yeah, yeah. And, a cro- and, a and a crocodile, and yeah. a dingo, and a dingo. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, it was <laughs> a great you. night. That was yeah, yeah, quite an amazing night. I'd never seen a false snake before in in the wild, and got to touch one. Yeah, they're pretty impressive. Uh, the one one we pulled out of the water was uh, had lots of young in it. And uh, the water's still a little bit too high. We've had a fairly poor wet season. Uh, normally where we went, the, you'd see at least hundreds of file snakes as they travel uh, back to the, the big pools that they, they normally live in during the dry season. Uh, but, yeah, we saw a few, so it was good. They feel, you feel, they feel really raspy. You see how they get the name file snake. And yeah. Is that because they're catching fish and fish are really slippery? Or Yeah. Um, file snakes eat, eat fish. Uh, and they do it in uh, anyone that's kept a python will will know that the python 
strikes, grabs rat, wraps rat up, and then spends 10 minutes thinking about which end it's going to eat. Normally, normally it eats the nice end, not the yucky end. And... Uh, and then it slowly devours it. If ever you see a file snake eat, it's, it's gone in a blink. It's just so quick. Wow. They'll grab a fish, wrap it, and they're halfway eating it down before the thing's even slowing down. And, uh, and, and it is very impressive. So I, I, I can see why people keep file snakes. They're just brilliant. Um, well, that was a, a great start for us because my favourite Aussie python that I've kept, Owen um, Pellies might be up there when I keep it. Um, is a black-headed python, and that was the first python that we found last night, and my first wild Australian python. Yeah. Which, yeah, wow, what a start. And then today I'm holding on pelly pythons. Yeah, it took me a long time to set that up, though, Steve. It did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You've still got to go back and get that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. I was, I was, we, went, we went to Fog Dam and didn't see any water pythons. That was surprising. Although, we, well, what did we see? A kill, killback, didn't we? A killback, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, You've got to admit, though, there, were a lot, there was there a, were lot a lot of traffic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were having a, um, a, a bit of a, a, what was it? A, a night, a boardwalk night with the ranger. So there were a lot of people from Darwin there and lots of car traffic so yeah. didn't really expect to see much and that's why we sort of didn't hang around there mm. shot shot through yeah you picked up on that pretty quickly and said yeah we'll just go yeah. somewhere else well you went to fog dam because you guys said you had your heart set on fog dam so we oh, and if you, yeah because <laughs> it was going to be my first python in in the wild australian python yeah um we just wanted to make sure I was going to see one. Yeah, and I thought of... Dam is the place that we didn't see one. I put my yeah. foot in and said, I'll, I guarantee you we'll find a python. And then I thought that's the only thing I can yeah. guarantee is going to find. But you actually, before we went to fog, you took us around the back end and we saw those two black whip snakes. Yeah. yeah which yeah. was a pretty good find, I think. Harrison Dam, yeah, two of the biggest black whip snakes yeah, I've ever they seen. Were they were huge. Yeah, glad we didn't get too close to them. Mm. But, uh, yeah, very common snake right on dark, dusk. You know, they... they Hit the floodplain, do whatever they're doing, catching frogs, and and uh, and, and moving back into the, where their where their holes are, and uh, and go to sleep at night. But you know, just on that dusk period, very active, very quick animal. So mm. yeah, pretty scary. And the, was it the western brown we saw? Uh, northern brown. These northern days. brown, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah, all these taxonomists change yeah. things all over the place. Yeah. yeah, that was stunning. It was a beautiful sight. That was wasn't it? absolutely yeah, it was, beautiful. It was bright orange, wasn't yeah. it? Mm. Orange. Yeah, stunning. Going a bit quick there. Another <laughs> another thing we didn't really want to tangle with. Um, anyone that's listening, if you're a just a keeper, please don't get into elapids. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where uh, when I had a, a big reptile display in the middle of Darwin, I used to say to my keepers, "You're here to enjoy life and make it a long and fulfilling life." and a lot of people that play with the lapids have a lifelong ambition to play with the lapids don't get into it just because it looks like a good thing to do um you know i i apparently caught my first eastern brown snake when i was two and a half years old on a golf course with my dad and my love for all things um snake stemmed from that uh, but i spent 25 years working on the lapids particularly i've never been hammered by one which probably to a lot of the uh, the people that free handle elapid snakes means I'm a bit soft, but I'm still alive, and that's always a good thing. 
So, yeah, there's yeah. nothing soft about that. <laughs> yeah, stick with, stick, with, stick with Python, stick with stuff that really isn't going to kill you. Um, it's, uh, it's good for longevity. Life's short enough. And, and it was to your mum's horror that you got into snakes? It was, yeah. yeah she's, a, she's not a massive... Um, she's a bit of a fear of snakes? Just a little, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't even look at one. Yeah, I'm, 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 I love my mum. Uh, she unfortunately doesn't love my my life's ambition which was to work with snakes she is absolutely petrified of them and uh, it got to the it, it is at the point where she won't even look at a snake on a book a snake on tv or, or and she cringes even when you mention the word snake and i'm not sure where it all comes from but what it meant was that having been a researcher on snakes and having done three degrees that are all on snakes um, <laughs> whenever I spoke to my mum she'd say oh what are you doing at work dear and I'd say you just don't want to know and and even when I finished my PhD I handed her a copy of my thesis and I said you might not want to open it because there's pictures of snakes in it and she said okay and I guess to this day which is 20 years later she's never even opened the opened the book so, so the yes. world thinks that you're a reptile conservationist, but you're really just rebelling against your mum. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, going down that route, I mean, we all keep reptiles and we've all probably had our, um, our people that we've, we've sort of helped and faced their fear a bit. Have you got any um, stories on that side? Oh, the, the one that uh, really stands out is a lady came to Crocosaurus Cove uh, about five years after we'd started, and uh, she just said, uh, I've got this fear of snakes. Walked into Croc Cave and found me, so she'd obviously heard of me and said, um, I've got this fear of snakes, and I've heard that you'll help me through it. So we pulled a couple of Stimson's pythons out, just little fellas, and, and uh, said, you know, do you want to hold these? And she just sort of collapsed in tears uh, in a seat in the in the um, reptile room, and and, and said, yeah, yeah, I want to get to it, but, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely petrified. I've never seen anyone. I'm, I think this lady would have been up with my mum in terms of fear of them. Uh, and she got there about lunchtime. So she'd flown up from Adelaide in the morning, got there about lunchtime, and uh, we spent all day with her. Um, by about four o'clock in the afternoon, she would hold one. Um, so you'd put it, put it near her and her hands would be shaking, a bit like yours were earlier, Steve, when you yeah, held that different reasons, but yeah, Different absolutely. reasons, yeah, that's right. So her hands are shaking <laughs> and we tried to, to you know, just ease her into it. So we'd start with something small and, and by about four o'clock she would hold one, which was good, and then by five o'clock she'd hold bigger ones and, and by six o'clock she was all over it. She just absolutely loved it. Thought it was the best thing since sliced bread and... Uh, she got me to take photos of it, uh, her holding big carpet pythons and, and half a dozen pythons at the one time and just just absolutely loved it. And so I got a whole heap of photos and, uh, on her phone and she put the snakes down and instantly started texting. And I said, oh, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm just sending them to my husband because my husband keeps calling me soft because he'll hold a snake and I won't. And I've come up here with the specific purpose of holding a snake and I'm just sticking it into him 
because he doesn't even know I'm up here. <laughs> so what she did was come to Darwin, get over her snake fear, and then jam it into her husband that, uh, that she could do it, and all power to her. So she went home a very happy lady, and she was only in Darwin for one day for the sole purpose of getting over a snake fear. Now, that's a little bit extreme, that extreme. and that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, you know, the, this generation that we're living with seemed to, seemed to uh, not see snakes as something to fear or something unusual i mean when i was a kid and probably when you guys were kids you were just a complete weirdo um i, I probably still am i'm not sure yeah, i looked at Adrian. Yeah, yeah, that's right. but 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 anyone that was into uh anything different was just seen as a weirdo and these days it's almost blasé commonplace mm. so yeah as we uh, yeah it's just how it goes. No, well, it is. And I, I, I feel like, you know, pythons are pretty common in captivity, but still when I do an animal show and I'll show birds and mammals and amphibians and the last animal I get out is the python and that's the main one that everybody can't wait to see. And, you know, yeah. it's one of, those, um, one of those animals. Yeah, yeah. I, I still, uh, when, I had, when I was at Crocosaurus Cove, I still uh, would tread cautiously because not everybody wants to see a snake. And so my staff, I'd always say, do not get a snake out straight away. Bring lizards out, bring a turtle out, bring other things out, and then find out with your audience who is comfortable with it. Because the last thing you want to do is pull uh, a big snake out first thing and go to put it on someone who screams and just loses it. Um, Because what will happen is a few of the audience members will also go, well, if that person's screaming and Mm. running away from it, I don't want to. It's like a sheep on a paddock. It. If a sheep runs, it will tell them, what are you, we're running. Okay, let's all run. <laughs> let's go, yeah, yeah. Humans are sheep. Let's yeah. face it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Collectively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, spending some time with you last night, we said we went out herping. You're actually generally concerned about the conservation of these animals too, as much as you're involved in the captive breeding and all of that side of things. You're involved in the conservation of these animals. You, you, you watch them, you look at their populations, you're interested in what we can do to help them. And in addition, you're involved in the education about these species too in, in many ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of those things? Yeah, I guess I grew up in South Australia, as did you guys. And I the, didn't. The, well, you're honorary South Australian. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you are immature when you're <laughs> <stuff. laughs> Some things never change. And, and, and um, growing up in South Australia, the only place you could actually get uh, near other people, like-minded people, because keeping wasn't that big in South Australia, but research was. So if you look at the South Australian herb group, it was connected to the mammal group and uh, the... the uh, uh, one of the other groups as well. Field gnats. Field gnats, yeah, that's right, field gnats. And so they were all lumped together, and it was mostly uh, museum, university-based people. And so that fostered this research interest. And I think a lot of very, very clever uh, scientists have come out of South Australia, that sort of system, that, that South Australian system of, um, of, of being part of that. It's different to all other reptile societies around Australia. And if you look down the East Coast, uh, especially New South Wales and Victoria, they were more into keeping. Uh, this is long before internet, long before mobile phones and things like that. So you didn't have the, the social groups that you could, um, you, you know, you could be on, on social media that you can today. So you would all turn up to a meeting and, and hear about 
uh, a conservation park that had been surveyed and, and, and you'd go, oh, gee, I'd really like to be part of that. So I guess that's where that conservation bent started. Um, education is, a, is an absolute given in any form of, of conservation um, because if you can't articulate what you're doing, then it's lost as soon as you walk out the door. And uh, scientists, and I'm probably not that good, I'm uh, another one of, of many, but scientists, I think, always needed a PR person as their sidekick to be the, the mouthpiece for the work that was being done by the scientists. And, and we see that right across the board. Now, we have had on a global scale, people like David Attenborough, who are the mouthpiece. He could have been a scientist in his own right, but he saw his skill was to articulate the science that was going on ar around the place. So he, he did for 40, 50 years what I think science, especially biological sciences, need right now. And that is, if you've got a group of scientists at a uni that are really working on um, a group of animals, plants, whatever, uh, that are in need of public sympathy, public empathy, public uh, help, then you've got to have someone that's a PR person, a people person, that can articulate just what's going on. And we're starting to get that more and more. You know, yourself, Adrian, you know, you know and, and Steve, you, you, you guys do that, bringing the science that's done into the public arena. And for so long, scientists will be their own worst enemy because they'll all write scientific articles and put it in scientific journals that get shelved or put on an archive somewhere and no one gets to hear about it or see it. And it's not in the public sphere in reality. They'll say that it is, um, you know, it's, a, it's in the public sphere. Anyone can go get this journal. But you're only going to get the journal if you know to go and get the journal. Whereas if you look at popular, popular uh, magazines or, or, or books that come out for people that keep reptiles, uh, it, it actually brings that, the research, the conservation, the education, all into to one um, package, I guess, that, that people get. And that's, that's happening more and more. So I'm just another in a long list of, of people that saw my job as a scientist um, go nowhere if it couldn't be articulated to the general public. And, and to bring awareness too. For sure. And most of the time when you look at a scientific report, which I very rarely do because you've got to stop every second word and look up what it means. Yeah. <laughs> in the, so if you go straight to the conclusions, it's education and awareness are right up there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, no, yeah, thanks for that. I, 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 I think there's absolutely a role for podcasts too is, is like a, another, another realm of getting that message out there because in today's society, people don't have time to sit down and read a book, let alone a report. Yeah. Um, but people can be driving in their cars right now. There'll be people listening that are maybe chopping up dinner. Like I know I listen to podcasts when I chop animal food. Yep. Um, so you can you can learn something while you while you're getting your job done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wait, just just one. I bought in uh, a book that I wrote a couple of years ago uh, on my first reptile, and this is just an, uh, more of an example of just what I was talking about. And the, aggressive marketing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't have. I, I don't have any. They're all they're all held by Reptile One these days. But um, it's called My First Reptile, and the first thing you know, what's the first thing you notice on the front cover, guys? Kids holding yeah, animals. Absolutely. Mm. Now, if you go back over the years 
and get a reptile book, even a, even a keeping reptile book, tell me how many kids were actually in any of those books no, or they people. Weren't. There weren't. There weren't, you know, because reptile people were seen as weird, as we started out before. Um, anyone that got into reptiles was a weirdo and... How how dare uh, you you know you you portray reptiles and people on in the one in the one particular book? They were so right. Uh, they were yeah yeah that's right. <laughs> uh, and and I figure the only way that you get people into reptiles or into any form of biological sciences is to show that there is a connection between the animal and the human, and uh, and that's what I did with this. You know I wanted kids to see kids doing stuff. I wanted to see kids work out that it wasn't just for adults this keeping reptile stuff it was something that any kid could do and they can mm. mostly it's mum that gets to feed the bearded dragon after the kid's lost interest six weeks later but mm. you know by and large but that's changing a whole generation by getting it through to the kids absolutely mm. yeah absolutely so not every kid's going to be into reptiles their whole life you don't expect them to be but you just hope that they have an awareness like you said and and a respect for the animals and part of my thinking over my entire academic life or, or working career has been this disjoint that we have between government saying we've got everything protected don't worry about it. You just go on doing, being your accountant or your lawyer or your garbage collector or whatever, whatever it is you do for your job because we've got everything that you need to, to, to know about animal and plant conservation under, under control. And in actual fact, they don't. You know, basically, they, they just do the best they can. Uh, if the answer's always no, then probably 50% of the time they're going to get it wrong. Um, and I think people need to, to own it themselves. And so if you don't know anything about any reptile and you leave it to a government, then you know, all folly to you. But if you're actually uh, integrated into the system and you can say, well, I kept a bearded dragon as a kid or I kept a Stimson's python as a kid, I don't keep them anymore, but I got to know what a native animal is. Therefore, I don't think um, what you're necessarily doing over here, government, is correct. And you call them into question. They might be correct. The government might be correct. But then what if they're wrong? What if they get it so horribly wrong, like the Christmas Island pipistrel? What is that, by the way? Oh, it's just a little bat. It's a bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And obviously the government didn't care about it. Spent millions following it to its extinction, as they are with a lot of things. And I'm not saying that they could have necessarily done anything, but they, did they try every avenue of working out what they could do? And that's, that's what I mean. You, if, if people are invested in their wildlife then they're prepared to ask questions if they're not they don't they just go oh yeah government's got it under control and we lose it that's what you hope that's what you hope and that's that's that is a a seed being sown i i remember i used to get a little bit disillusioned i expected too much like when i first got up and started doing these animal shows 20 years ago um geez you are old yeah, bloody old. Yeah, I know. I'm 27. No, um, I and I would I would give my heart and soul talk about local native plants and conservation and biodiversity and all this stuff and and you'd, people would come up to you afterwards and they'd go, that was really good. That really moved me. And you go, wow. And they go, yep, we're going to get a pet snake now. And I'd be like, that's not what I was trying to say. But <laughs> but I, I think back to when I was a kid. Um, I mean, I got into reptiles because. I would go and firstly I was into bushwalking in the environment and then I'd see reptiles and I wanted to bring some of that environment back to my house because I yeah. got some like you were talking about like the escarpments in Central Australia and the red sands and rocks I wanted to live in amongst nature a bit more so that's why I had captive animals but 
these people, these mums that go, wow, that, that was really good, our family's going to get a pet snake now. I think, like you say, it, it is a seed that's sown. It's a baby step towards going out and going herping. And, and, and things like once you do that for a decade or two, you, then you notice there's less of these. Yeah. Or well, that environment's changed and then people do realise what's going on around them. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's, it's a tough gig to, to get people uh, invested in, uh, in conservation or ecology or even you know just calling it plants and animals because for so long it's been a taboo thing you know if you wanted to keep a snake you had all these barriers to to uh to entry if you like you know you had to uh, work out whether you could get a permit did you have the right background to be able to do it would your mum let you keep it and you know you had to go through a whole heap of different hurdles to 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 get to to that end point now that end point is a lot easier to attain these days and it's only because of the little baby steps that were taken over the last 30 years to get to a point where all all common reptiles are bred so prolifically in captivity that it's no longer necessarily a wild animal so you as a kid would have gone out and caught we had, a take, we had take permits. Frogs, to get yeah, all sorts yeah, that's of, yeah. right. I, I remember going and catching stuff before you needed take permits. Um, but even getting a take permit was... <laughs> the first take permit I ever got when I lived in South Australia was for two black tiger snakes, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. But <laughs> I'm not sure that they'd let me do that anymore. Um, the, but, but the idea was that, you know, you could actually keep a, a native animal and, and from there you understood what you were keeping uh you understood a little bit about it and therefore you're invested in native wildlife and even now we we, we've got so far with reptiles but we can't do that with mammals go and try and keep a a uh, a quoll in new south wales or queensland and uh you've probably got more hoops than you care to jump over to to be able to do it and yet they're a fairly common animal especially in captivity you know uh, zoos breed them northern territory uh, Territory Wildlife Park bred hundreds of them and then found that they didn't have anywhere to put them so they let them yeah, die out don't think there's too many around at the moment for the private keeper yeah yeah it makes it hard when they only live for a year mm, yeah so yeah, yeah. They, yeah after, if they don't breed in that first year that's it yeah um, yeah yeah but a lot of the small mammals that could be kept just aren't so yeah, and, and, and the points that we're making about reptiles, I mean, reptiles are a bit more accessible, but, I mean, there might be kids out there into fish. You fish know, they yeah. might be into birds and they, uh, whatever it is. And, and they're, again, they're, they're those um, steps towards learning yeah, about the environment. Growing our empathy them. for the environment. Yeah. Protecting it a bit more. That's yeah. a good, way, good word to use, empathy for the yeah. environment and the animal. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to take us back to last night herping. Um, we saw quite a few water pythons and Adrian, you brought up at one point how they were all small. Um, have you got any thoughts on why that is? No, just just dumb blind luck. I mean, the floodplains are pretty extensive. They extend 80 k's to the north, and they probably go another 20 k's to the south. And we were on this little tiny ribbon called a road mm. going across a floodplain. So your chances of seeing pretty much anything on this little tiny ribbon when you've got 100 kilometres of floodplain stretched out is pretty minimal. Um, Some days you'll go across there and find 10 adults and Mm. no youngsters. 
It just seemed to be that this last night was just the time for the youngsters to be going. In fact, we didn't see that many adult animals of anything. All the snakes other than were small, weren't they? The, yeah, the yeah. file snakes were adults. They, were, mm-hmm. they, were, they had babies in them. Um, the black whip snakes were big and the, the northern brown snake was big, but everything else was just young. Yeah. So maybe it's the time for them to be moving. We're at the end of the wet season, towards the end of the wet season. You know, end of March is when the, the rains sort of cease and animals go back to where they probably uh, spend the dry season. So it might be that the youngsters are on the move trying to get back to where they think they should be for the, the dry season. They all looked in pretty good health. I mean, they all looked they in, in pretty fat. Mm. So some of, those, uh, some of those water pythons were almost as wide as they were long. Mm. Yeah, they, were, they mm. were in great shape. And the children's pythons were in great shape. Yeah, whichever shape you put them, really. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, another um, um, captivity program that you were involved in and have brought to our hobby the albino olive python how did that come to you uh, i was working at the at the uni at the time and and uh some guys found it at a mine site just south of darwin and they were busy telling everybody that they had this white olive python and apparently the sort of bit of conjecture here but the parks and wildlife had heard that these guys had this white olive python illegally and they asked me if i you know, because i was working on pythons at the time and um, had permits for pretty much all the pythons um they said oh can i can i hold it so i did and uh and i gave them some young a bit bit later on but uh, it was a real hatchling when we first got it. You know, it was probably they'd had it for six months. Apparently, they were going to be raided by Parks and Wildlife, uh, so they wanted to offload it. And I said, "Well, I'll take it," and I did. And uh, and pretty much the rest is history. I remember Brian Barnett. I, I did a talk in Victoria one year, and Brian Barnett came up to me after the talk and said, "Oh, yeah, I like that olive python," and I said, "Yeah, I kind of like it too." only had the one at the time and it was still young and he goes you know if you kill it you're going to be known as the biggest mongrel on the planet that killed the <laughs> only pressure. albino olive python aren't you <laughs> and you know this weighed heavily on my mind for about a th- about three seconds <laughs> I thought well I can only do the best I can do and luckily you know I did breed it um, we, it did go okay and, um, and it's pretty you know, widely distributed now. Interestingly, it's held its price. I gotta say, I love some of the garbage that's on the internet, uh, where it says that when I first put out albino olive pythons, they were twenty-five grand each. They were at least forty, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Just complete garbage, and, uh, and and I find that interesting that it gets perpetuated because when I'm talking to people that are talking about albino olives, I don't ever say that I bred them or that I had the original and stuff like that. I just let them rabbit on, and uh, I've probably had half a dozen people tell me how the guy that had them first was charging 25 grand each. I'm going, oh, yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's fictitious, but it's interesting. Yeah. And, the, and the same thing for a lot of the other things that I've, that, that I've done that, um, that you know, we've got, we've got herpetological amnesia over time because, you know, when I bred um, uh, Gleba Palmer, um, 
if you go on the internet now and type in Gleba Palmer, it will say that I was asking seven grand for each animal. And reality was that I actually had nine animals. Some of them were bred. Most of them were wild-caught from different areas. So it was a huge genetic stock. But I was breeding uh, Kimberley rock monitors at the time. And the black palm rock monitors, I had a whole heap of them. I'd bred, so I did what I wanted to. And I wanted someone to take that project. So I offered it for seven grand as a whole project project. ready to go. (laughs) But the internet has turned that around and people have got on there and said, oh, he's charging seven grand per animal. What mongrel? You know, why would he do that? Hmm. Sometimes fact is a little bit different to the the fiction that goes on on the internet. Yeah, that's right. I don't mind the idea of that. If I was to buy that off you for seven grand, I'd put the rumour out there that I paid seven grand each animal. Absolutely. Because then the price would be up for the animal to (laughs) (laughs) That's That's because you're a a businessman. I'm I'm just a researcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it, but yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how, how things change. I, mean, I think we got, uh, John and I, when we did Snake Ranch, we got charged with uh, um, offering rough scale pythons for some exorbitant amount too. And I don't think anybody ever paid as much as people are saying that they did. So, you know. What's the most that anyone that you know has ever paid for a snake? Well, I, I, in Ham in Germany, I, it's, from memory, it was a long time ago, it was rumoured that. I think it was a the first uh, captive bred leucistic ball python, which apparently went for two hundred and fifty thousand euros. Oh my god! Or is this how those rumours spread? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> maybe. I yeah. think when I heard it, it was twenty five bucks each. But um, it's gone. <laughs> I think it, was, it was apparently like yeah, it's a lot of money. Proper money. I know people that have spent that amount of money on like a, a colony of snakes yeah. and not big colonies you know five five animals or whatever yep. spent that much on things like that it's a it's a gamble isn't it you're playing you're paying for the game yeah. and, and um, that's all back in the day when it was oh it's an investment and we'll make money back like nowadays no such thing yeah, yeah. not not really going to happen I, uh, a lot of these things that i bought into captivity I, you know, I mentioned to you last night that greg fife and i bred a couple of hundred spencers goannas and and greg started it i got some of the first uh, first captives that he bred, but I also had some of my own adults, uh, and we put a couple of hundred Spencers on on the market. Now we're just we Greg and I are just nobodies that uh, have gone into oblivion, and you get all these these new keepers now that are breeding Spencers, and how clever am I? My thinking back in the day was goes back to what I was saying about being invested in wildlife. If if people are breeding some of these animals and they're doing it legitimately. And and other people get to to see them and stuff like that. There's no need to go poaching. There's no need to um, big note or, or or do stuff that is really against the law. And I guess people in the past have come up against that government hurdle where you'd say, oh, I want to go and get Gleba Palmer, you know, the Black Palm Rocco in her. Sorry, I yep. keep saying Gleba Palmer. No, that's Black, Black Palm Rocco in her. And and they'd get hit with, no, you can't go and do it. When you get to the point where uh, where there are none in captivity, what happens next if you're an absolute fanatic? Well, mm. you go and get them anyway. Mm. It happens anyway. I mean, this is the stupidity of, of the whole system that we had. Knowing that people are going to go and get them, doesn't it make sense to, to sanction the capture of them, take the DNA from them so that you know that the, the, the captured ones are, are which ones? And then when anything shows up in captivity that you're a bit sus of as a, as a government, 
then you test the DNA and you say, hang on, these aren't part of this original colony that was, that was done for that. But we didn't do that. Basically, we said, no, nope, you're not allowed to go and catch anything. Uh, and so people would just keep stuff illegally. And, and so people that keep reptiles had a really bad reputation even though they were trying to do it the right way. Most of them, there's always going to be some idiot that mm. just can't help himself, but most people would try and do it legally. And when you find that you can't, all of a sudden you're saying, but hang on, this is an animal that, that might be threatened. Well, maybe it's not. I don't know. We just don't know anything. Hey, government, is this animal threatened? Oh, we don't know. We think, it, we think it's fine. You know, we think it's fine. Everything's okay. You don't need to touch it. But even to the point like what you just said, I mean, I agree, um, but why even bother taking DNA? Just get a few subjects into captivity, breed them, and then they'll, they'll, all, they'll soon be available to people. And even without the DNA and that backup to, to be able to, you know, get the legal system involved if something was dodgy, like, you wouldn't, I just don't think you'd need that even. There's a, there's a whole heap of populations of, of uh, not, not just reptiles, but other animals, uh, salamanders in the US and, and, uh, and, and frogs, that are in decline in specific areas. And they are very localised uh, species. So it's only found in a small area, like, say, an Owen pelipython. Now, if everybody goes and gets an Owen pelipython, and we don't really know how many are there, then at what point does the population fail? We don't know. But if you, if you have a managed way of dealing with a, a population, uh, you know, a species population, then you can say, yes, we sanction the, the taking of 100 animals from this population because there's 1,000 there, so it's 10%. And if that's enough for for forever in captivity if other animals are taken from there there's uh, is the population going to suffer from it we know 10 percent isn't but is 20 percent is 30 percent at what point does that population fail because you've taken too many now the, there's a uh, greg johnston was telling me about a um Tenophorus fionoi uh, peninsula dragon from up near Wyala that used to be really common on, on a particular hill and now because of collecting it is extinct so it can happen uh, there's, when I was in Germany in 98, there was a, a, a German miner who was strip mining uh, parts of the Amazon and he had some of the last known of a particular tortoise, uh, box tortoise, uh, because his company had strip mined this forest and he knew he had the last tortoises. So when you've got people that can do that, have that sort of power, and, and even just people power of, of denuding a, a particular hill near Wyala of this animal, don't you think it's important to sort of manage it? Yeah, I do. So, so I, just, I just think like you're asking something to take DNA and try and trace all of that. You're asking something, and, and it, it sort of adds to their reasoning to saying no, because that sort of makes no odds to them because they couldn't police it anyway. But it adds to their power as well. Yeah. You know, everything in government to me seems like it's about power. Mm. It's not about the right or the wrong answer. It's just about power. And if they have some sort of power, then they're kind of happy. They're a little bit happy it's a bit, yeah. a bit like giving a kid a toy. You know, here, have a toy. It might not be the toy you really want, but it's a toy anyway, so it'll keep you occupied for a while. Yeah. That's a. Mm. With the, like you said, it's happening anyway. Um, you know, so let's not let's make legal channels for it to be able to happen, like the taking of animals from the wild. Would that translate across to illegal exporting of animals? 
In my mind, absolutely. Uh, you know, we uh, there's a lot of people over the years have tried to export native wildlife. Um, prior to uh, some particular time when they, they brought in permits, uh, all Australian wildlife was just vermin. You know, you could, could do whatever you like with it. Um, probably now we still treat a lot of a natural resource, a lot of our animals, as as vermin. You know, uh, a lot of uh, grains grains farmers are allowed to shoot hundreds of thousands of corellas or sulphur cress or whatever, you know, just uh, because they happen to be eating a commercial crop. Now, those corellas are a commercial crop in themselves. And it makes sense that people that would want a corella could, uh, could purchase one if they're overseas. But the Australian government won't allow that. Uh, and, you know, the former or the, the current Minister for the Environment has basically said over his dead body will he allow any export of uh, Australian fauna. So, but he we, can't seem to stop it happening illegally. Well, absolutely, he can't stop it. And and you know Australia is the poorer for the fact that there is no legal export. Um, having said that, there's always the complete clown that really has no idea on what they want to do, uh, won't do it in a controlled way and is doing it illegally now anyway, and they get caught, and then you have the minister saying, see, here's why we won't, we won't allow it. So if it was done in a controlled way um, for an, an awful lot of uh, native animals that we've got, then I think it would be a benefit to absolutely everybody. People don't need to come and poach. I mean, that's the, the age-old old, um, uh, reason for, for uh, allowing it. Um, the, the animal itself doesn't have to be destroyed, in the ter- in in the corellas and sulphur crests and and red kangaroos and things like that, so we we actually benefit from a, a natural resource that we have. But but again, it comes back to that to that government. Geez, I seem to be bagging governments a lot. <laughs> they probably deserve it. Um, so we've had John Walmsley on the podcast. This is nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, John Walmsley and I were both at Flinders Uni, so I guess there's the connection there. But, uh, um, if you are allowing export legally then we get returns from taxes we get uh, a commercial venture so people are employed we have a whole uh, continuation of the economy and animals aren't shoved into socks and, and you know, high death rates and yeah that's right yeah yeah so it takes a takes a it takes a lot of things out of the equation especially that that black market poaching stuff and how some of these uh, governments come up with numbers for uh, black market both numbers of animals and the amount of dollars attached to it has got me beat. It's billions, isn't it? Oh, it, it's just garbage. It's one under drugs, isn't it? It's, it's just garbage. Yeah, that's right. And 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 probably my plucking from the ether of the idea that it's garbage is probably met with disdain from some government department. But again, I I challenge them to justify those numbers because I don't reckon they can. I reckon they're too gutless to gust, to justify them. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't see why they don't let people and heavily license those people, like keep keep an eye on what for they sure. do. But for captive bred animals, why can't you do what you want with them? And like you say, you'll, you'll be getting that, you know, it's another industry, yep. it'll be more tax, GST, everything that, that would come into the Australian yep. government. Um, but instead, they just seem to ignore it. And, and our captive bred reptiles have no environmental value at all. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, putting a value on something is always the tough gig. Let me ask you guys a question. So the albino uh-huh. olive was the, you know, the first of the, the morphs to be bred. Um, all the morphs that we have now, you know, some amazing stuff from Joe Ball in, in uh, yeah. tree skinks and blue tongues, some amazing stuff in all of the pythons, most of the pythons. Yeah. Are they, are they wildlife? Uh, absolutely not. Are they wildlife? You know, we've got a government that's saying, hang on, that's a bredeli cross diamond python and it's pure white. Mm. Well, it, is it I wildlife? Think, is it technically mm. like um, a crossed carpet python? It, it, that you, you technically shouldn't really need a licence for it. Correct. In my head, correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Why do you need a licence for really common stuff anyway? But, well, know, I think New South Wales, I think, have just made exempt carpet pythons and the children python genus as well. Yeah. Made yeah. them exempt. And yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like, yeah, why not? Yeah. Why not attach um, a, a, a level of conservation status and protection yeah. to animals that really need it? I'm a Owen oh, Pelly python or rough scale python or uh, greater desert skink or, or something that is incredibly rare has the exact same protection as your garden skink. Which is yeah, it's insane. Ultimately, just everywhere. So, how do people distinguish between uh, a great desert skink being protected and their common everyday variety garden skink? Protection? It is an interesting one because when you call it wildlife, I mean, there are people that are just diametrically opposed to Australian native animals being kept in captivity, and we've talked a little bit about this before. And yep. um, if you, if a politician was to come out and say, "I think we should be able to legally export our animals." Um, it would not be a popular thing for a politician to say. I mean, there's a photo getting around at the moment of a kookaburra in a cage that's for sale in a pet shop. It might be in London or America or somewhere, and an Australian saw it, and they've shared that photo, and people are horrified. It's a wild animal. It's a, And yet, you know, someone has a budgie and no one gives a shit. Yeah, um, yeah it's this perception. Is, isn't it kind of um, hypocritical? The very same people that are abhorrent to that are okay um, with you bulldozing tons and tons of acres or hectares of land for actual for, wildlife. For, yeah, yeah. For, for a monoculture. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about so, land clearance. So, well, yeah. you know, I, I, I just find that so hypocritical that they go, oh, we're really worried about a, a kookaburra in a cage, which is probably third generation captive bred, whatever, it yeah. doesn't matter. Um, uh, and yet they're the very people that are saying, oh, look, I'll put, I'll invest some of my money into one of these scam type monoculture uh, companies that, that just put in just put in mango trees or they just put in cypress pine or they just put in something over thousands and thousands of hectares. I, uh, I recently had an argument with one of... just doesn't sound like me at all, but had an argument with a, uh, a, a government... Happy-go-lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming out of this very well, am I? We might not release this. Yeah, yeah I'd say, say keep it under wraps, guys. Yeah, otherwise, I'm going to jail. Um, there's, a, there's a property south of Darwin, uh, 600 south of Darwin and uh, it got a permit to bulldoze 35,000 hectares of land uh, to put in a monoculture and uh, and I, I argued I went down and spoke to the landowner and I said can I get a whole heap of animals and plants because it's got orchids and cycads and stuff like that on it as well can I get every every plant or animal off of there that I want and I'll pay you for it 
Okay, so basically, if I got a spotted tree going off there, I'd pay him some money to do it. And and the manager there said, mate, if you're prepared to pay me to get stuff off, you go for your life. So I put in a permit to park some wildlife, and I said there's 35,000 hectares that's going to be bulldozed here, so it's 70,000 acres. Um, there's one scolaris, or spotted tree goanna, per acre, as denoted by Sam Sweet in... Uh, uh, back in the early 90s um, so I want to get 30 uh, I want to get 70,000 spotted tree monitors so I put that permit in <laughs> <laughs> and the head of the, the Parks and Wildlife guy that I was talking with just rejected it out of hand and I said but every animal's dead we've got two conundrums here one is it's dead so it's a waste of a resource but the other one is you've given them a permit to kill everything on it you're a conservation agency and you're going to kill everything. How the hell does that work? And at what point does it go from, oh, we've got to conserve it because we're parks and wildlife and we're going to protect everything to the point where I'm the landowner and I'm going to bulldoze it. Somewhere in there is a, is a crossover point where parks and wildlife are no longer in charge of it and the landowner does own it. So at that point, I can actually come in and get my 70000 spotted tree monitors to make sure that they don't die. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, just even just on the, when you mentioned the plants, I mean, I, I just know walking around my property and I look at these plants and you think, well, that in a pot, like just some of these forbs, that in a pot at Blair Nursery, that'd be $10. Yeah. You know, there's millions of dollars of plants on my three acres. Absolutely. And, and part, of, part of what uh, a friend, uh, Tony O'Grady, Dr. Tony O'Grady from uh, University of Tasmania and I started was looking at a holistic approach to sustainable use on a property on a on a property size level, to say, well, can we actually take enough of these spotted tree goanas and sell them to reduce this guy's number of cows and still give him more income? Because if you reduce the number of cows, you don't need to bulldoze stuff, you don't need to do anything, but you're still making a living from your property. And you're diversifying. Absolutely. And the only way, it goes against the pastoral act up here anyway, so you need to change that, and most people get around that somehow. But the only way that sort of works is with the international trade. It really, if that were opened up, and I, you know, I'm getting too long in the tooth to even contemplate that sort of stuff these days, but I saw it as a, an academic challenge that, that we always say that we want to we want to grow economies. We want to uh, uh, diversify. We want to uh, have the pastoral industry work so that it's that it's productive and and producing a profit. And and, and if they were able to work with biologists like myself and and yourself and get uh, tree orchids that people want in cities and only harvest them sustainably and sell them or harvest scolaris, then they don't need to bulldoze it to put in a monoculture. They can actually make money every year from harvesting these animals, and, and, and especially if they can be exported because the, the world is crying out for it. But unfortunately, they'd rather have people come in and poach them and send them away illegally than, uh, than do something legally like that. We, were, we, we showed that it worked. We actually, uh, Tony and I, um, did well we made a profit on that business we only did it as a pilot study just to see whether it would work um, but we've seen it work with red-tailed black cockatoos we've seen it work with cycads up here in Arnhem Land and we've also seen it the big one the one that really 
is the poster child for this right across the planet with saltwater crocodiles. Mm. You know, if Graham Webb hadn't come up, one of the, those weird ironies in life, back in 1988, I wrote a paper for the Journal of Radical Economics and it was the precursor to sustainable use. I wrote about sustainable use and I sent another paper that was salvage, which is what I'm talking about with the, uh, with the 35,000 hectares. You know, you're salvaging the land before they actually bulldoze it. So I wrote these two papers and, and uh, sent them away to this journal this journal said no that's too radical we don't want to we don't want to publish them and about uh, a year later Graham Webb came out with the idea of sustainable use of wildlife which is a policy t- undertaken by the Northern Territory government and I think that's a really smart move it's the only one in Australia that that has been smart enough to do it because all other uh, bureaucrats say no it's too hard and yet it works you know, it doesn't work for everything. You know, little garden skinks, it's not going to work. But for a, a lot of things, especially things that people do want to put a value in, like crocodiles, it works brilliantly. And without Graham Webb doing, putting, helping to implement that policy and then putting that policy in action with crocodiles, crocodiles would be probably extinct by now because governments weren't doing much about it. Mm, they weren't even protected. Yeah, with, without, John, without John Weigel jumping up and down and putting in Devil Ark, uh, and, and all power to him uh, at a private level, there's a good chance that Tassie Devils would go the same way because governments weren't doing anything about it. And they'll bleat and they'll complain and they'll say, oh, how do you know and, and why do you know, how do you know all this? Um, but all, all I can say is question it. Just question it because if you don't question it, they'll just tell you what you want to hear. And look at the things they didn't protect that are gone. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always sad, but you know, a, a new generation, a new set of ideals, and hopefully, a new set of enthusiasm to to, to really look after this place. And and, and we're kind of lucky in that we do have a small population. And and if you're clever enough and logical enough, you can get past the no. And per, with persistence, yeah, yeah, perseverance. It's, what, it's um, just want to quickly say that you have a background in economics, so that's. Fantastic. A biologist with an economic background is fantastic. Um, what, what, what's the main reason that they had said no to the wild harvesting idea? <laughs> I think it was volume. And, and they were worried that it would set a precedent. In, in actual fact, the, the, the guy that was adjudicating on that, um, on that particular permit, he saw me at, at the markets up here one day and I said, oh, so how come that... Well, everything's going to die. You're happy for everything to die, is that right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, so why why won't why won't you allow it? And he goes, oh, because you will set a precedent. And I said, but that's is, is that a bad thing? That's that, that that's using a resource, isn't that what economics is all about? Isn't that what the, the world is all about? Using a resource. And he looked at me and he just goes, stiff shit. Whoa! <laughs> so I can't, can't argue that, Gavin. Well, yeah. <laughs> can I get that in writing? And unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't get that in writing. But, but, but what that did was say it's about the power. That's that's where I got really cynical, and I said it's not about the animal. It's not about conservation. It's not about anything except power. And he had the power. Fair play. Okay, you've got the power. If that makes you sleep well at night, good on you. He could have been, he could have got some, I mean, about power, he could have got power through that as a voting platform to say, look at these things that we've saved and we've opened up a new industry and it's, Absolutely. and here's why it's sensible and, yep. um, that's, that, that's that same guy who's now one of those 
big reptile breeders that I've seen crop up. (laughs) (laughs) He took the idea. You're not doing it, but I'm doing it. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, what a good idea. I wish I'd thought of that. So I've got tame up wildies in Kangaroo Island. They cull 50 to 60,000 a year. Yep. Um, And you can't use them. No. You can't make fur. And if you did make them into fur, people would throw paint at you if you wore a fur cape made out of a, a Tamar wallaby, yeah. and yet those people will use plastics, they'll use cotton, which drains the Murray. Um, well, it's organisations like PETA that perpetuate that sort of illogical argument. But they'll also invest in companies that do do that, you know, that, that are the, the, uh, the new denuders of the country, that are the ones that do mining and whatever. And, you know, yes, we need all of these uh, industries... And it, need, and it needs to be done strategically, but um, don't be a hypocrite. Don't don't say, oh, you can't do that, and then invest in the company that is actually going to do that. You know, that mm. just defies logic to me. Mm. So anyway, I mean, we all we all like to have a phone, we all like to have a car, and um, it, it, but it's policy that's going to make the big difference, I think, from the top. And yeah. there's not much of that that's uh, too positive at the moment. But but the the policies change because the grassroots, the average, you know, the the kids that are coming through. Start questioning, and that's I the love, beauty. I love the thought of that. Yeah. That's the yeah. beauty of science. You know, that, that's what science is all about. It's just about asking questions. I mean, the number of times um, I would stick my hand up in class and go, uh, "Why does that happen?" <laughs> uh, and you'd see people roll their eyes and go, "Oh, is this uh, guy really <laughs> that thick?" Probably, <laughs> but, but 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 the other part of that was I would be asking questions that people weren't thinking about or I'd be asking questions that people wanted to know the answer to but were too scared to ask and and with a little bit of education comes power from knowledge Mm. and then you have the ability to ask questions that are logical answer questions that are logical and work out whether you're being lied to or or whether everything is okay in the natural world because governments tell you that it is i I have this strange fantasy that if we could stop making a population go bigger we could stop cutting into the natural resources and maybe even put back some of the um the native plants and and biodiversity isn't that, a, isn't that a crazy thought? What you, a crazy you thing dreamer. to say. You dreamer. You dreamer. Yeah. But what about the people? Yeah. Who do you call? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, look, I know. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other episode there. Yeah, absolutely. Right, this will be fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for after lunch. Yeah. <laughs> Who do we call? I, and and you know, for twenty years, I've I've thought about that problem too. Unfortunately, if you do economics, you realise that everything that we deal with is built on growth. We cannot deal with it. You know, governments talk about growth in house prices or, or growth in GDP, gross domestic product, or talk about growth in education. They talk about growth in everything. As soon as something is static or declining, all of a sudden our economy is declining and that's not good. And we're dealing, we are competitors on a global scale. So we have to compete in the growth stakes with everybody else. And the one thing that got us through the, um, the last GFC was the fact that um, the, the Labor government um, did manage and promote growth very well. So while the US went backwards in a big way and a friend of mine ended up with a very nice uh, motorboat that probably would have cost 200000 and he got it for less than fifty um, out of the US because of their declining economy, Australia didn't experience quite that. And, and, and again, it just comes back to we cannot deal with an economic system that doesn't have growth. You almost need global policies in place so that even supply and field. So, yeah, why should we 
why should we suffer and, and not be able to compete internationally? Almost any global policies, and that's the only way it can happen. The population of the Earth exceeds, is so great that two-thirds of it is in poverty. So you've got this massive labour, uh, you know, just a bank of labour that will never see a job. And yet the third that is fairly affluent is supporting that, that two-thirds to, a, to a, a great degree. Um, if you've got all these people that are unproductive in an, in an economic system, in a world economic system, then the one thing that can't really happen is exactly what you're talking about. You can't, you can't sort of find jobs for everybody because even now there are no jobs for two-thirds of the world. So you're caught with this massive population that just keeps getting bigger and we've only got you know, finite jobs for them, finite resources for them, uh, and sooner or later something gives. And I, I guess you know, that's what David Attenborough is talking about now, but uh, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but a number of people have thought about for at least 20, 30, 40 years. And you, know, you go back to uh, Malthus, one of the thinkers of the 1800s, I think it was 1800s, who, who said that sooner or later we will um, have a population that can't be supported with the resources that we've got. Now, that didn't happen then because we had an exponential growth in the technology that we used to grow stuff. Mm. And uh, yet we're, we're probably getting to the pointy end of, of, of that sort of system too you know where you can only depleting our soils now and yeah yeah that's right and you can only get uh, you know two and a half ton of something off a, a, a hectare now um and you can't grow it to 10 ton per hectare it just won't do it you know so we've got to the pointy end of how our technological increases how far our technological increases will get us so at some point i guess Malthus is right and and, and i part of the pickle that we're in with climate change and 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 um, loss of habitat, loss of animals and plants is due to a population that is unsustainable on the planet. It's a hard it's a hard question to deal with because, as I said, who do you cull? You know, how do you cull? How do you say to people you are only to have? one child or no children you know uh, you know we con my wife and i consciously only had one child uh, because of the idea that there are too many people on the planet but then i know a number of people that have five or more kids and some of them are, are very uh, wealthy affluent actors and writers uh, that are in the public eye and they they joyfully go up there and say I've got eight kids how clever am I hmm. um, and when you've got that uh, you know such we celebrate such it. reverence for film stars and, and actors and and, and, and and people in the public profile the little me's of the world that have one child and, and do it consciously because we don't we're trying to decrease the population of the, of the, of the world are never going to be heard it needs it needs a real uh, propaganda push or, or or public awareness push to say this is really important uh, and and then something might happen. But then mm. economics fails because we don't have growth in population because that's important too. I mean, all of these things need that that uh, push that you talk about. They all need, we've talked about it, they all need to be sexed up, don't they? You need you need 
a sports star to have a bit of an intellectual lean where they can come out and say something like that and young footy fans will go, oh, wow, well, the ruckman of such and such team says this. Yeah. I might consider that, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. It's, it's getting there. I think it's... There's, there's certainly a change over the last 10 or 20 years. I think so. I yeah, think yeah. so. Certain people in cities are breeding less because, well, there's not much room here in the city. Uh, I don't need 20 kids. I'm not operating a large property. Yeah. So that's a positive. I don't think we need to cull anybody, but they might end up <laughs> a situation where they cull themselves. I mean, because there's a lot of... yeah. You're in a good mood today. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've had my coffee. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, populations that live close to each other that there's a bit of friction. Yeah. You know, um, we, we will know of many examples. But then with climate change, that friction's going to increase and we're going to see climate wars. Okay. Wars for food, wars for water, wars for all sorts of resources. Okay, okay. okay. your mood's gone now. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's always going to happen. And, and you're, seeing, you're seeing governments now change the way they talk. They're not talking global anymore. They're talking very local. And, and Trump is uh, probably the master of it, although Putin is too, um, where they're only talking insular. It's only about the US. Every other country is, who cares? It's only about the US. Your own interests. Uh, yeah, that's right. And that, that is creating that tribal lines. You know, we don't care where you've come from. If you're in America, you're an American, and therefore everybody else is an outsider. And, and it's, it's not, I'm picking on Trump, but it's not just the US. There's a whole heap of countries don't that are doing Trump. <laughs> no, no, that's what everybody else is doing it. Why should I? Um, so so I, I can see that you know just the battle lines are being drawn differently now uh, compared to probably ten years ago, where it was um, a, a global economy. And, and and yes, we're all in competition with each other, but we all sort of understood how the global competition worked. And now it's now it's changing, and and that's that loss of resources, uh, both food and water, um, the 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 loss of a lot of things, uh, and the writings on the wall that with climate change, especially human-induced climate change, everybody wanting a car and a mobile phone and a whole heap of stuff. We've got a a lifestyle that we as Australians or we as Americans or whatever are trying to maintain, even increase. And we'll do it at the expense of everybody else. Whereas as a global economy, we actually look at the whole picture and say, hang on, we're all doing it wrong. How do we, how do we change that? So I think there's, there's a change in the way that we're talking. And you know, if you go back a few years, climate change wasn't called climate change. It was actually called global warming. And global warming's got a really negative connotation. Climate change doesn't. So we've actually changed the language in the climate and that's so that people can keep firing coal-fired power stations and keep doing things that they have done for hundreds of years because it's in their interest to do that it's not in, in our interest to use negative language like global warming you know, so, so call it call it what it is call it what it is yeah that's right because as soon as you get away from it the people that can be held accountable are no longer accountable you don't get to pin it on it and say, this warming is because of the policies that you've come up with. If you just call it climate change, oh yeah, that could mean anything. It could be up, up, down, east, west, whatever. It really doesn't matter. You can't pin something on them. So go back to calling it what it was so that we can actually do something about it. We're just... A bit more of a serious name to it. Then. Going soft and <laughs> politically correct for the sake of it. You know, it's just crazy stuff. I'll go back to the 35,000 hectares that's being bulldozed. Uh, if, if it's my 35,000 hectares, now it's on a big cattle property, so 35,000 hectares sounds like a lot, and it is, but on the size of the property it is, it's only a, probably less than 
if I own that property, I get a subsidy from the government to bulldoze it. So all the all the diesel that goes into my bulldozers, all the uh, physical attributes that I use to bulldoze that property are a tax deduction. And if I put a fence around it, then there's grants that I can get to fence it. There are grants that I can get to actually put the monoculture in, whether it's mangoes or, or pines or whatever, uh, bananas. If I'm, if I'm planting something that is a commercial crop, then I can get grants to do it. I can get subsidies to do it. I, I actually get paid. How clever am I? I get paid to bulldoze natural bush and put in stuff because that's what it's done. Now, hang on. What's the converse of that? I want to keep it as a virgin block. I want to keep those 35,000 uh, hectares as they are. I want 70,000 spotted tree goannas to stay there and all the tree orchids and cycads and stuff like that. So I put my hand out to the government and say, aren't I a good boy? I'm, I'm leaving this big block there. Guess what they're going to give me? A lecture on being an idiot. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Do you understand business or don't you, yeah. you clown? Get out. Mm. Now, if I'm a big company, I even get a triple whammy with this. Not only do I get to do that and get subsidies for it, but if I've got other companies, big companies, then I can use a loss on this first couple of years because I'm not going to produce anything from this block as a tax deduction going forward on my other companies. You know, so basically they can use it to offset um, losses elsewhere. And if we don't look after those companies, they'll take the jobs overseas. Well, we invest in those companies. They're big companies. They're multinationals. So a lot of people are investing in the, in the very denuding of the Australian landscape. And they're proud of it. I'm a, I'm a shareholder. Well, I'm not personally. <laughs> but, you know, they put their hand up and say, I'm a shareholder. Aren't I clever? And yet that, that company that they've got shares in is actually wiping out native Australia, natural Australia. That's a crazy circle. It is a crazy circle. So where do we get to the point where we say we actually value native wildlife? We don't. We don't value it. If we valued it, then there would be subsidies to not bulldoze that land, mm. to not get that bulldozer in, to not get that chain and wipe out kookaburra habitat or spotted tree going a habitat. You would actually be praised for it. And probably in 500 years, if the earth's still spinning as it does... Um, in 500 years to find a block of dirt that's native of 35,000 hectares will be nigh on impossible to do unless you're in the, probably the middle of the Simpson Desert. Maybe even in 50 years. P possibly even 50 years. And, the, you know, the, that, that comes with that population growth and that need for growth and a whole heap And that puts the value on it too. I mean, I look at my little, my little remnant block in Milo in the Adelaide Hills. I mean, there's not too many bush blocks when you look at how much the Adelaide Hills are being caned. And they're one of the top 10 biodiversity hotspots in Australia, yep. that, that area. Um, and wasn't a very expensive block. Yep. Uh, I bet you there's some manicured, tidy blocks that went for a lot more. But I think in years to come, people will value biodiversity. Well, well here's playing devil's advocate for you guys. So what? So what if you've got the last block? So what? How do you put? Um, how do you put the uh, the the value and the price that we value native land to the average punter. Yeah, it wouldn't be the average punter, it'd be one in a thousand people with a That's exactly right. So one in a thousand makes it about a hundred people in Adelaide that would value it as you do. Uh, it's not enough. 
Mm. So we're just going to watch it go. I, you know, I, I drove through Queensland when I, I, I bought a car recently and, uh, and drove it back. And uh, I drove through Queensland and all I could see was bulldozing everywhere. Uh, everywhere I went, central Queensland, it's, it's gone. And some of that is just amazing country. But for the average person, and this is what I'm talking about, to be able to say we grow a commercial crop there. This isn't the farmer. This is the person living in Brisbane or Adelaide or whatever. For them to say, oh, yeah, yeah, but we're growing more crops because we've denuded country, that's important to them. Um, we've got more timber that we felled so we could put pine plantations in so I can have floorboards and furniture. That's important to them. We've got more areas that uh, we can put schools or another, uh, another hotel or something like that. That's important to them. Having a spotted tree go in it is really low, low, low. No, it just doesn't. It just doesn't rate on their priority list for the average person. So somehow we've got the priorities wrong. And like I, I go back, I keep going back and bashing governments. But as soon as governments start saying everything's fine with the native system, the the, the natural systems, you don't need to worry about it. People don't. And and unfortunately, with that sort of propaganda comes an apathy that we're in now. Who gives a rats about a native block 35,000 hectares that's going to be bulldozed? You know, there might be one in a thousand that say, oh, I don't really like that. Yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Well, it's interesting, but I don't, I don't like any of that feeling of native bush, obviously, but I, I don't do anything about it. I mean, we have conversations like this and you hope that the next generation can do something about it. It's, it's um, I mean, I, I do what I can physically. I protect my little tiny minuscule piece, which, you know... Yep. It is, it's very tricky and, and most people and like I'm someone that's really interested in this and I don't do anything about it so most people are living their life looking after their kids and their family and their job yep. um, so they have to have faith in the government said that it's okay so we've got look how many conservation parks we've got and then we go well that's okay oh they just gave a million dollars to protection of that species well that's good yeah. um, it's, it's really tricky it is tricky I, I always thought and, and this might not be something that you want in this, but you know, um, I always thought if I could find, after I got out of academia, I thought if I can find something that I can make an awful lot of money on, then I can actually bring attention to this. So I've gone the other way now. Um, I, I've worked with Owen Pellies and, and a whole heap of other animals and found that whilst there's a specific interest for some people, it's not right across the board. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about products that I can produce that are on the planet that are uh, universal, everybody needs it, and then I can funnel money from what goes into that to this very problem. You exactly, know. 100%. That's really interesting you say that. So so over the last three years, I've come up with this, uh, th this app for a coffee cup. You know, everybody can get their uh, discount if they take their own coffee cup, and they're all connected to the one system. And from that, if there is uh, a universal take-up across the world, then we're talking about uh, many billions of dollars. And from that, we can have a small part of each coffee that is consumed in a, in a cup. Using Which is made this, out of hemp? No. Okay. Using, using, <laughs> using this app yep. funneled into making it so that we do have a value for native And that gives flora. us power. Uh, yeah, because part, part of this app would actually show you by not using a, a throwaway coffee cup, how much energy and how much time and money and plant, you know, plantation timber we are actually saving. So you can reduce 
the footprint on the planet from monoculture. And, and so we can say, well, we've actually saved this amount of, of land from being bulldozed every year. And more and more people get on it. You can do it for every every um, country on the planet. Yeah. That so, sounds amazing. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so I, I wasn't mm. trying to make this a, an advert, but no, that's, no. that's how We're, my thinking went. It went yeah. from trying mm. to save the specific, trying to save the habitat, trying to get people to value it as I do. And mm. I can see that is never going to work in the way that we're doing it at the moment. So the only other way I can think of is you come up, you come up with, you know, you do a, a Bill Gates or, or a mm. Steve Jobs and you come up with something that everybody just absolutely has to have. And from that, a little bit goes to this very problem it goes into it and you, you know yes you in the initial stages you're going to have to throw an awful lot of money to well, propagandize i guess you know get uh, get people interested in it in a way that they want to be engaged and then go forward from there but that's you know like i say that's a great idea and, and that's what we need all things like that that are going to mm. bring awareness yeah to a problem because that app, people love apps now Absolutely. Um, and that brings awareness to that problem, especially if you can see charts of, yep. you know, you personally have done this good up to now, yep. Australia have done this, the world has done this. And yep, that's right. Yeah, that would be yeah. And, and that's what this app's got. Yeah. You know, basically, it, it will show you CO2 emissions, it will show you live, and it's live feed too. So if you've got a, a million people buying a coffee in their, in their own cup and not a throwaway cup, um, then those million coffees will translate into plantation timber not done, CO2 that hasn't been emitted, and a whole heap of stuff. Uh, so, but yeah, it's a, a long way off because I can't seem to get funding for it. But you get that. Sounds great. So, would it generate its own money as well? This, this, yeah, yep, it would. Yeah. That's fantastic. We need to monetize conservation. I've always yeah. said it. I mean, we did a, an episode with Tracy McNamara from Fame, the Foundation for Australia's Most Endangered Animals, and being an animal person, I thought, oh, great, we're going to talk to her about the qual project she's working on, and this and that, and yeah, yeah. the Kangaroo Island Dunart, and and she was talking about economics and how she, her her role is to get money, and it just it's kind of obvious to someone like yourself, but it it was. Wow, this person's not an animal person at all. She's a financial person, and we absolutely yeah. need that. So I get asked to talk. Actually, it's funny through having this podcast. Somebody was googling like, "What are some jobs my high school kids can get into?" And they did a bit of a Google search and discovered us. And yep. I now go in and talk at high schools. I don't take any animals. I'm just talking about job opportunities in conservation. And I say, whether you're a, a lawyer, a footy player, a racing car driver, you can still be a conservationist. And we, I think for too long, the people that love the environment the most had no money and no interest in money because I love the environment and I just want to wear <laughs> right. no shoes and have dreadlocks, which is fine. You know, especially if you're growing your own food and there's a lot of great things about it, but you see people with all the money in the world, and I don't know if you're like me, but I look at some of these people and go, you could do so much good and you could monetize it. Yeah. Maybe not to the extreme, but how much money do you need? Yeah, that's yeah. Right. If everyone did that, do what you're good at and be an environmentalist as yeah, much as you but, can. That but they be, can only yeah. do that when they know to do that. And mm. again, it comes back to when we first started this conversation. If you've got them growing up, knowing what a bearded dragon is and then knowing that by the time they get to be a billionaire that dra bearded dragon habitat is gone then then they're more possibly more inclined to say hang on I remember what a bearded dragon was like as a kid and mm. I don't like the fact that the bearded dragons are gone so let's do something about it and I've now got the capacity to help make that happen mm. we really need to get that I know I know um, well, you know, Bill Gates, Bill and, and, and his wife um, donate a lot to environmental causes around the world and, and they're, fairly, um, they're fairly well known for that. How do you get those funds? How do you use those funds? Uh, and again, relying on one 
benefactor is not enough. This needs to be right across the board so that people say that 35,000 hectares is of as much value to me as my backyard. I want to make sure that that's there for when my kids and my grandkids get um, you know, old enough to go and visit it, whether they've seen it or not. And, and you know, that's, that's the tough call, because if you can't see it out of sight, out of mind, you know, what do I care? Um, can, just getting back to your book, mate, uh, My First Reptile, is that a book that people, listeners, can, can get for their families? Yeah, yeah it's in most uh, pet barns, I think. So, uh, you know, it, it was done to bring people together. Um, I think it's in most pet barns. It's uh, on the Reptile One uh, website. Uh, I know there's a few pet shops that have it around the place. Yeah, most reptile so, shops I normally yeah. see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For any of our billionaire listeners, I mean, you know, listen to what Gavin said about his, his coffee cup idea. It's a great idea. We do need young innovators to come up with ways to, you know, monetise conservation, like I've said a hundred times today. Sure. And that's that's a great idea. It's a great way to do it, um, especially if you can see the results. I mean, there's so many organisations that they want money, and, and I'm sure they, they, they're great organisations with great intentions, but people are sceptical. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I, I always struggled with, uh, having done economics first before I went into science, I always struggled that scientists give away their results for nothing. And you've only got to talk to Attenborough to, to know exactly that. Uh, so uh, you, you would get people that are working on Dunnarts, and they're the world leader in understanding Dunnarts, research on Dunnarts, everything that's written on Dunnarts, they've, they've done it. And someone like David Attenborough will come along and say, oh, I want to do a documentary on Dunnarts. And you'll just have verbal diarrhoea from the Dunnart expert telling Attenborough everything he needs to know about Dunnarts. And I'd go, hang on, (laughs) Attenborough's making a living out of that. You've got a whole film crew of probably 15 people that are making a living out of that. He's selling the documentary to probably 20 or 30 or 40 channels. And how much did the Dunnart researcher get from it? And the amount of years that that, that, that one hour conversation you have with the Dunnart person is years of their life. Absolutely. Mm. And the answer is zero or a token or whatever it was nothing and then you go back a little bit further and you say hang on who funded the research into the Dunnart well it was all of us we're all taxpayers they got a grant to do it so they didn't really value what we gave them did they we gave them the capacity and and the the impetus to work on this Dunnart for five years to get a PhD and they just gave away all this information for absolutely nothing. Okay, it put it in the public sphere, that's a good thing, but no one else except the filmmaker benefited from it. There was no money going back into conservation. There was no money going back to the Dunnart. There's no money going to the guy that worked on the Dunnart. So there was no money going back to the university that fostered this kid to actually do the research. So he gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars for nothing. And in biology, we do that right across the board. Go and ask a lawyer or a doctor an opinion that spans a couple of years, and there's no way in the world you won't pay for it. You will be... 30 minutes. That's exactly right. And so when I was at uni and I was working on pythons, I had uh, one of the BBC uh, film documentary makers come and say, "Um, we want to do a film on pythons. 
Mr. Bedford, and I said, that's great. What's in it for me? What's in it for the university? What's in it for the taxpayer? What do we all get? <laughs> and all of a sudden, they're going, oh, my God. And I had the vice chancellor of the university ring me up and say, you're going to do some uh, filming. And I said, yes, I am, as long as they come up with the right money. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, exactly what I've just said to you guys. You know, we give away all our intellectual property for nothing, for Nick's, for Zach. When does that change? Again, we don't value nature. If we valued nature, we'd say, well, I'm as valuable as a doctor or a lawyer. Therefore, my time and my university's time is worth something, is worth as much as a doctor or a lawyer. That's generally why you've got these billionaires that we talked about that don't aren't aware of conservation because they grew up and their parents were billionaires and their parents got to be billionaires not by telling their kids to get into zookeeping. Yeah, you know, exactly. Do, do a biology degree, specialise in <laughs> Make the world a better place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It never happened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so again, right across the board, from the time we started this conversation till now, I, I, I still say that we don't value the natural system. We don't value what we've got. And until we do... We're all, we're all just going to be talking about how do we do something and we'll be the one in the thousand that actually want to have this conversation. The hardest thing is for the people that do value her, whether it's Indigenous people or just people that are interested in the environment like ourselves, and seeing it just being knocked down. It, it, you've, got to, you've got to disconnect at some point because it's overwhelming. For sure, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's like a, a jumbo jet with three engines out. You know, it's going to hit the deck sooner or later. Yeah. Um, when's it going to happen? And you know, w- when all four engines are going well, uh, there's only a pilot and a co-pilot. And as soon as three engines are gone, you've got 350 pilots wannabes. You know, and I think we're we're at that point where it's going to hit the deck, and everybody can see that it's going to hit the deck, and everybody wants to do something, but it's so overwhelming. How do you do anything? Mm-hmm. Mm. I think there are some people that want it to because their situation is so bad that it's like another roll of the dice. Yeah. It can't be any worse. Yeah. Um, I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. Too. <laughs> yeah. Spend a lifetime for nothing if that's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, in the big scale, life will bounce back, but for future generations, I hope it doesn't. Mate, thanks so much for coming on, Gavin, and thanks again for Thank taking you. us out last night, showing us the top end and no showing Steve his face to Australian so Python. Thank you so much for yeah, oh, the arm couldn't have taken your, uh, your listeners out there. It was great. Mm. Yeah. Good night. Are you saying bring them all back? <laughs> no. <laughs> all six of them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told, don't lie about quantities. Yeah, that's right. There's no yeah. way we've got six. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of them are paid, but you yeah, know. Right. Family um, members. No, no thank you oh, so much. I've, I've had a cracking couple of days with you. Yeah, Brilliant. oh, thanks for the chat. It's good. Thank Absolutely, you. mate. Hopefully we can come up and do it again. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you for listening.